The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody! Help! Not just anybody! Help! You know I need someone! Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Episode 172 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. After retiring from medical practice, I became an activist for family caregiving. Our topic today is euthanasia prevention, what family caregivers should consider. Now, euthanasia is about dying, but what euthanasia euthanasia actually is and actually involves all too often seems unclear. Dying of a family member deeply involves family caregivers in caring for the family member. Family caregivers hope that the death of their dying family member will be dignified, gentle and easy. Family caregivers hope that the care of their dying family member attends to spiritual needs, minimizes suffering and maximizes respect. Care of the dying usually perhaps always, involves medical care. Modern medical care can sometimes be used to delay death, and modern medical care can sometimes be used to accelerate death. So, for family caregivers, the use of medical care can create questions of spirituality, questions of family members' wishes, questions of respect, questions of ethics, questions of finances, and questions of law. Which is why our topic today, euthanasia prevention, what family caregivers should consider, is so important. To discuss it, our guest is Dr. Will Johnston. Will is chair of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition of BC. He's practiced family medicine for over 30 years. His practice has included emergency room, obstetrics, and the full age range of general medical practice, including the care of older people. He's performed dozens of legal competency assessments. That's where he's asked as a doctor to say where somebody, whether somebody is capable of making a decision for themselves, among other things. That's a task which has increased his familiarity with various aspects of elder abuse. He became concerned about the dangers of assisted suicide and euthanasia in 1990. He debated assisted suicide and euthanasia with Dr. Jack Kevorkian on television in 1993. He's since become more and more concerned by warning signs that all is not well in those few jurisdictions which permit a suicide, assisted suicide and euthanasia. And he's keen to warn those who wish to preserve their autonomy 
and end-of-life choices that assisted suicide laws may not deliver on these objectives. So welcome to the show, Will. Well, thank you very much, Gordon. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm extremely enthusiastic about this topic. Thank you. Now, so let's get started, please. First question to you. Please tell us more about your career, about your own experience with family caregiving, and about the things that really led to your interest in euthanasia prevention. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting that this interview comes up at this time, because my, my wife, uh, we discovered to have a, a very narrow aortic valve, one of her heart valves needed replaced, replacing just a few months ago. On October 22nd, she, she had her, her chest opened up, and a new aortic valve was popped into place. And through the, the marvels of, of cardiac surgery, she was home with me in five days. We had we'd rented a hospital bed, and um, and I thought that this would be a piece of cake, just um, arranging things and and making sure all was well. It was a cold shower, let me tell you, Gordon, to realize here I am, a GP. Here's my wife at home with, after this surgery, and I'm I'm bustling about to getting things for her and and uh, counting out her pills and so forth. And I and I more than once commented to to Nora, to my wife, what do people do? If they're, if they're not already inside the medical system, what do they do? Uh, I, I can't imagine having come home without a lot more support than, than we had if I was, if I was uh, a newbie to this kind of thing. So I, I got, a, as I say, a bit of a cold shower recently with, with our experience. Fortunately, Nora's doing very well. We sent the hospital bed back 10 days ago and uh, the electric bed with the elevating uh, portions and so forth. And, and it, it once again reminded me of the, of the huge challenge, but the very worthwhile challenge that, that families are taking on when they try to look after people with, with chronic illnesses or, or even uh, end-of-life illnesses at home. It, and I'm sure this is some of what has inspired you to, to have this program. But it's, it's really breathtaking when you see the amount of, of, of extra information and, and organization that is required for this. So I guess in answer to, to that part of your question, some, some recent very fresh experience with, with family caregiving. And um, more than that, though, of course, 30 years of watching people coping at home with family members who may be becoming less and less capable and whose movement is more and more limited and watching the challenges of, of adopting and adapting a new style of life. And this, this is um, with me all the time. In fact, I, I did a house call just before coming home to take this call with you, Gordon. And this is a patient of mine with uh, advancing dementia who just uh, yesterday was exhibiting some alarming symptoms and his daughter called me and um, we worked out what we thought was going on. But once again, it reminded me that our, our attitude to this fellow is to give him the best comfort, the best possible quality of life possible, and not to at every moment assume he's dying anyway. Let's just, let's just um, give him a little extra sedative or a little extra painkiller or something like that. And from a few days ago when he was quite, um, uh, quite sleepy and unable to respond to me, uh, he gave me a cheerful smile today, answered my questions briefly, and once again uh, gave the, the family um, that sort of reward for the effort they've been putting into looking after him. Now, let's talk about 
your work as chair of the Euthanasia, Euthanasia Prevention Coalition and what that work means for you. Will? Well, uh, it's, it's a uh, part of being a physician, I think, to be concerned about um, the way the society is going when it comes to handling uh, the, the, the life issues. The, these important issues of, of how we live our lives and, and how we uh, exert choice and autonomy in our lives. And it has become clear, partly through the work that you referred to doing competency assessments, that as we get close to the end of life, other people start to make choices for us. Sometimes that's welcome, and the choices are healthy ones, and, and they have our best interests truly at heart. Other times, I've seen some things that, that lead me to understand that there are vulnerable people. I think that uh, you were going to kindly provide the the, UR, the URL of the um, uh, website that we have, the Youth Coalition of British Columbia website. And May that, I just say, just quickly to interrupt you, yes, that will be actually in the um, what's called the e-card that, dis, that describes this episode. So, yes, it will be there. Excellent. The the um, anecdotes that are present in the article uh, called Assisted Suicide's Illusion of Control are from my personal experience. I can pass along uh, others that I've heard from my colleagues as well. But basically what it boils down to is that when, when you're old, especially when you're old, when you're ill, your highest priorities are often simply survival, and, and you are at the mercy of those around you who are suggesting things to you, who are feeding you, clothing you, bathing you, and you are not uh, always in control of what's going on. And what happens in this situation for some people who perhaps don't have a really strong social network or there are other personal factors involved is that they can be influenced by the people around them in a way that isn't necessarily in their own best interest. Now, well, I'm going to stop you there only because um, we are going to run into a break time. And I just want to ask you uh, about the coalition and its work. And we'll come back to some of those things you've already been talking about. So uh, please tell us about the work. Yes, exactly. The coalition sprung up here in B.C. 20 years ago when a woman with ALS was seeking uh, a, a change in the law to allow euthanasia or assisted suicide. And because of the concerns I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, uh, a good number of us representing uh, thousands of British Columbians through our various organizations got together and formed a coalition where we're simply trying to uphold the existing laws against uh, facilitating or encouraging suicide and, in fact, re- redirecting people's attention to, to good care. And... Um, and the avoidance of coercion and so forth. Now, a little bit more about that. Um, you're a group of people getting together uh, to give advice. Um, are you also trying to influence government and the medical profession and other people of influence? W- would that be part of the work? 
Yes, absolutely. And and the primary method by which we're involved right now is through being interveners in a court case in British Columbia uh, where the, the provincial court, the trial court, had declared that there was a, a national Canadian right to assisted suicide and euthanasia. Um, this uh, judgment by a, a single judge um, flies in the face of previous judgments by the Supreme Court of Canada and of Parliament and uh, is being appealed right now. And so our, our job as a coalition is to make sure that as interveners, we give the clearest possible direction to the court from our unique experience and perspective as to why we need to, to maintain the integrity of our laws against assisted suicide and euthanasia. That's powerful. Um, that's powerful work, isn't it? That means you've really got to be very sure of what you're saying and presenting to the court because a decision will be made in light of not only your evidence and input but also that of others who perhaps or very likely don't agree with you. So I'm assuming you do a lot of research in, in, in preparing for that. Well, there, Gordon, you know, there are two angles to this this issue really from from the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition's point of view. One is the public advocacy angle, and that is um, raising the red flag, warning people that um, although we all want more choice and autonomy, especially at the end of our lives, and that's certainly what I am seeking, that assisted suicide laws are there to protect us and getting rid of them won't necessarily improve our autonomy. That is, handing power over to the system around us to be free to facilitate our deaths isn't necessarily the safest and best thing we could do. But right. The, now, the I'm, other... going to, I'm going to stop you there. I'm sorry. This yeah. is the tyranny of time. <laughs> tyranny we have time. to take, <laughs> take the break uh, to pay the rent. So this is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Will Johnston. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We will be back. out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. If you're looking for answers and solutions, you don't have to look to expensive treatments, consultations, and methods. All you have to do is listen to your connections. Every week, the Dr. Melanie Show will teach you how to do just that. Dr. Melanie Barton will share her gifts and talents and teach you to do the same. And in doing so, find the solutions to the issues in your life that you truly need. You'll learn about holistic and practical health in six key areas. Discover the Dr. Melanie Show, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. 
Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Will Johnston. Our topic is euthanasia prevention, what family caregivers should consider. Uh, let's now talk about euthanasia, what it means, and the attitudes that influence it. Will, what is euthanasia? What other terms are used for it? And what do these all imply? And why does what they imply need to be discussed? Well, that's a, that's a good question. There is too much confusion about this. Let's keep it simple. Assisted suicide is where someone facilitates and arranges for you to have the the poison. Let's just restrict this to taking a poison pill, an overdose of pills. So someone provides you with it, and you have it. You lift it to your mouth. You swallow it. It is your uh, action, your physical action, which, which finishes the job of putting the poison into you. But let's just say that you don't do that. Someone else administers that poison, either by spooning it into your mouth or injecting it into you. That is euthanasia. That's the simplest way to think about the whole thing. I mean, the original meaning of euthanasia was literally good death. But, of course, um, we are arguing now about the best way to handle end-of-life issues and the best way to handle protection against against those who would encourage suicide. And so the original literal meaning of euthanasia is not really relevant anymore. Now, before the break, I mentioned that there were two parts to our, our sort of plan against it. Uh, one is to, to raise red flags with people, warning them that although we all want more choice and power and autonomy, that handing off power to others so that they are free to kill you is not necessarily the safest way to do that. Uh, the second part of our struggle as the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, of course, is the, is the legal arena. And really, um, the, the fight against a change of the law in Canada relies on arguments about some peculiarities in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms that some of your, your American listeners may not be uh, familiar with or interested in. But I can, I can tell um, everyone in North America who might be listening to this that, that the result, the outcome of the, this court case in Canada, and that there are actually two in Canada ongoing right now, uh, will, will have repercussions. It was, it was really encouraging that in Massachusetts, uh, despite an early lead um, going up to the November election uh, for the pro-euthanasia and assisted suicide um, ballot initiative, that with further education, the public sentiment swung against it and it was narrowly defeated. So uh, whatever I'm saying, some of the, the legal aspects of it might be peculiar to Canada, but the overall theme is, is, remains. You're a, you're a family caregiver and you have someone at home you've been looking after, what happens when they head off to hospital? Who is going to be there? And uh, when, you, when your listeners click on the link to our, to our website, they would be able to look down the right-hand side of our homepage and find Catherine Judson's name, J-U-D-S-O-N. And uh, Mrs. Judson had a very compelling letter to write to a newspaper in Hawaii a few years ago because she lives in Oregon where they have an assisted suicide law, one of the only two states to have this law. It's Oregon and Washington. She she took her husband off to a doctor, hoping at last to get some help with his serious illness. And as she collapsed in the waiting room in exhaustion, she overheard the doctor giving her husband a sales talk for assisted suicide, reminding her husband that that his wife uh, might be the better thing for his wife if he was to to, uh, take the suicide route. So as, as a caregiver, 
when your your loved one heads off to hospital, let's say they have a pneumonia or something that requires that they go off to a, to to um, see a an institution. You have to be able to trust that there are not people in that institution who think of themselves as, as angels of death, people who will make snap judgments about the quality of life of, you, of your loved one and make uh, judgments about whether they should be resuscitated or, or whether they should be treated that are um, based on basically um, uh, unfamiliar impressions of the person and, 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 as I say, a snap judgment about what their quality of life is and what it should be. Right. Now, let's move to the next question, because it flows directly. In these discussions about euthanasia, wherever they are, in the hospital, in the law court, wherever, in your practice, or the practice of other doctors, what typically are the medical conditions that are being talked about? And are all of these also what sometimes called medically incurable conditions or end-of-life conditions? Well, what about these medical conditions? What are they? Well, the medical conditions that are being talked about really are anything that you can imagine. Uh, there is there is no medical condition um, where you where you would not be able to find someone who says that they find it intolerable, and so we have seen, for instance, sadly enough, in in Holland, uh, a woman with anorexia who was euthanized, um, a woman who was, was simply grief stricken by the loss of some family members who was euthanized because she claimed her depression was incurable. Uh, we've seen uh, infants with spina bifida who in Canada or, or uh, America would be um, treated through a spina bifida clinic. They might be wheelchair users, but they would be, they would be uh, children like any, any other children. And we've seen a, a protocol put in place in Holland for those children to be euthanized if their parents feel that uh, they don't like the, the sound of that quality of life with, with loss of use of the legs. So um, basically, there is no condition that wouldn't qualify for, in some way, being being called um, uh, incurable, uh, intolerable, um, and there is no suffering which which cannot be declared intolerable by someone, either the person who is suffering or by the people around them. So the, the one of, this is one of the huge problems with controlling this this. Uh, this beast, this euthanasia-assisted suicide beast, is that it has very fuzzy margins and they tend to enlarge. It's interesting that with Washington State's assisted suicide law in place, there was even speculation in the press uh, a few months ago that if people are complaining about the fact that uh, they don't have any money, they haven't saved any money for, for, um, for their retirement, uh, they always have the other option. And although that might have been said sardonically, the very fact that people could talk in a, in a public forum, in a newspaper, uh, in this way, could never have happened before that assisted suicide law was passed by a, by a, by a ballot initiative, by a, a, a referendum kind of arrangement. So uh, the, the, the sad thing is that um, young people with, let's take an example, insulin-dependent diabetes, can you imagine if you want to put the the um, the best light on it? You could say, "Well, here's something that people used to die from. All you have to do is take an injection a couple of times a day, and this amazing stuff, insulin, will let you have a normal life." Uh, someone else turns it around and says, "I'm being tortured by my disease. I have to take uh, a, a sharp little needle and plunge it into my body four times a day. This is going to go on forever. I can't stand it anymore. Let me out of my misery." 
So there really is no medical scenario which can't be painted as intolerable. And I, I, I think we have to recognize that this is what's going on when um, activists come forward to try to propose this very appealing-sounding solution. You've got someone who's suffering. Just be humane. You would do this for a dog, wouldn't you? Just let them out of their misery. The problem, of course, is in the details, not in the, the, the general concept of, of curing suffering, of relieving suffering is fine. The problem is in the details. If you're going to do it by uh, taking away society's wise provisions against killing, then all of a sudden you're, you're, you're complicating things immensely. Now, let's go to the broad issue of what you consider to be the most influential attitudes on the part of society. And what these attitudes I'm asking you about relate to are obviously euthanasia. And euthanasia, um, for almost any medical condition or any condition, that one can think of. That's something that you, you made very clear, that it's whatever somebody decides is, is uh, unbearable for any reason. So what do you see as the most influential attitudes on the part of society as a whole? Actually, gullibility. Gullibility and naivety. Because um, what, what the, um, the, the euthanasia and assisted suicide agenda is being... Uh, marketed as is an enhancement of your freedom and of your of your control enhancement of choice in other words and my, my suggestion is that that um, uh, there's a, a fundamental inconsistency between the way people think about the medical system when it is recognized to be over treating and out of control or self-interested or arrogant and the medical system of the imagination that would provide this enhanced control by killing you when you want to be killed at the end of life. In other words, people quite sensibly have some skepticism about the power of the medical system over the individual, about the relative advantage that doctors and nurses and healthcare systems have over the individual, especially someone who is sick, um, who may not have a, a strong social network, who may not may have may not have strong advocates for them, and so we quite sensibly have this skepticism about medical power, about um, about uh, certainly in in the U.S. about some medical in interventions which may be motivated more by the interest in profit than they are in in um, the uh, the well-being of the individual. However, when a doctor comes along who says that he's offering uh, deliverance from suffering by offering assisted suicide or euthanasia. Let's hearken back to, for instance, Dr. Kevorkian. Suddenly, he's seen as the good Dr. Kevorkian, and a, a, a kind of a mythology springs up around him, where supposedly this is now someone that one can trust. Somehow there is, it is now legitimate to put faith and trust in the medical system, in doctors and nurses, as long as they have this, they're armed with this power to, to, to provide euthanasia or assisted suicide. I don't know if I'm making the, the, um, the paradox clear enough here, but... It, it is interesting to me that wishful thinking, gullibility, naivete really rules the roost when it comes to thinking about this whole thing. Uh, when you think of the, uh, the 
older person who has had a ride to the lawyer and the will has been changed and they've had um, uh, they've found themselves living in a place that they don't prefer to live because their relatives want them to live there. Um, they're getting a ride to the bank and, and uh, a relative may be helping themselves to some money. When you, when you think of this, this older person, you realize you've got someone who is really vulnerable there. Do we really think we're going to get rid of elder abuse, that we're going to enhance the security and the, and the uh, safety of these older people by putting a system into place where they could be pointed towards assisted suicide and euthanasia? I'm, I'm going to stop. Well, only because of time, I'm going to yes. stop you there, but we're going to be coming back to this. So we'll take the short break. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guest is Dr. Will Johnson. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We will be back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Approximately 1 in 150 children are affected by autism, giving autism the undesired ranking as the most prevalent childhood developmental disorder in the U.S. 67 children will be diagnosed today. That is nearly one child every 20 minutes. Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica, hosted by Terry Aranga, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Terry offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcasts each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Very rarely does our news media spotlight some of the good things that are happening in our world. For more of these good stories and the people that are creating them, tune in to Bread for the Journey with Mariana Cacciatore. Whether these good acts stem from personal tragedy or just a desire to help out and make this a better world in which to live, you'll find inspiration in every week's program. Connect with those that are doing something great for a change. Listen for Bread for the Journey, Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. 
Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Will Johnston. Our topic is euthanasia prevention, what family caregivers should consider. So now let's talk about the things that family caregivers should consider. So, Will, first question, how accurately can physicians predict outcomes of medically incurable or end-of-life conditions, and how should family caregivers take account of physicians' predictions? Well, I have a, a relative who received the the terrible diagnosis of, of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, um, ten or fifteen years ago, and this was uh, this was not speculation. He was told that this was, is what he had, and as you probably, uh, as your your listeners are probably aware, this usually carries a lifespan with it of of only a few years. Now, for whatever reason, this relative is still alive, very happy to be alive right now. Uh, had some serious symptoms, uh, began an experimental therapy, which, which caused some serious medical problems. That was stopped. But for some reason, the, the, um, the disease did not progress. We have uh, other examples of this. And so I think that the article that is entitled Terminal Uncertainty, which can be found uh, at our website or at the, the website called Choices is an Illusion, and um, I, I hope that we'll put, in fact, a link to Choices in Illusion. That's an American website, which is, which is very informative. But there was a Seattle Times article called Terminal Uncertainty about three years ago, which, which points out uh, very, very clearly that um, prognosis is an extremely ina- inaccurate business. I'm routinely asked by family, how long can dad last? And sometimes one can say with confidence that because the person has slipped into a coma, there's been no food or, or, or water, and, um, and the, the illness is progressing rapidly, that the death may be within a few days. But at other times, a person's gradual decline has an incredibly uncertain prognosis. It, it can be anywhere from months to years, literally. And one of the concerns we have is that that um, people will become discouraged and will think that their lives are over when, in reality, with some adjustment, they really have, have a long time left to them. They may have years. We, have, we consider Jeanette Hall, who was a, a woman in Oregon who wanted to use their Assisted Suicide Act when 12 years ago she was discovered to have a, an advanced local form of, of, of bowel cancer. And thank goodness her her doctor was very much appalled by Oregon's uh, law allowing suicides and encouraged her to receive the treatment and she she now uh, speaks on our behalf she she speaks out as to how happy she is that she she didn't take advantage of that um, assisted suicide law and get those pills so bottom line um, prognosis is a mugs game. It's, it's a, an extremely difficult business to be accurate with prognosis. And never mind the prognosis, it's sometimes difficult to get the diagnosis right. We routinely have people told that they have one thing when they have another. And that's not because doctors are, are bad or silly people. It's because uh, medicine can be a very difficult um, uh, science to, to uh, perform. Right. And so... Yeah. I, I'm only interrupting you because of time, and I apologize to you, but it's ruthless in broadcasting. I want to move you to the next question, which is please tell us 
what state-sponsored suicide means and when and why should family caregivers be aware of its implications? Right. Well, the, <clears throat> the, the problem, of course, with, with the idea of, of the state sponsoring suicide is, is that um, certain expectations are placed up in the air. There's a, there's, an, there's a suicide offer always dangling. And because it's part of the, of the scenery, uh, the medical system is expected to acknowledge it, and this, in effect, uh, promotes it. Because when you take someone in a rough situation and you say there's always the option of suicide, you're, you, in effect, you're getting your, their mind bent in that direction and, and moving in that direction. So there is the aspect of, of kind of public sponsorship of suicide at a time when, in every other regard, we have a huge problem with suicide, and we have public commissions being set up. We just had a, uh, an act passed in the Canadian Parliament to set up a, a national um, uh, sort of council which is going to oversee programs against suicide. We have parts of Canada which have the, the highest suicide rates in the world. These are often in, in areas populated by the, the Aboriginal First Peoples of, the, uh, of, of Canada. And so... The, the idea that there's one foot on the gas and one on the brake is, is, is always there. How can the government be working its hardest to prevent suicide on one hand while providing an officially sponsored suicide system on the other? So that in, internal inconsistency is, is, is bad enough. Then, of course, there is the, the overarching issue of money. Barbara Stroop and Randy Wagner were two people in, in Oregon who were sent letters uh, some years ago saying that their their end-of-life care treatments would not be covered by the Oregon plan, but they were covered for assisted suicide. And so the, the, the specter of a health care system offering uh, suicide because it's economical and from the point of view of the, of the uh, health plan uh, is, is always hanging in the background. But I don't I don't for a moment claim that that is what is motivating people who are interested in assisted suicide for themselves. Of course, they're not interested in becoming more efficient units of production, getting out of the way so that the next generation can take, on, take over. People who are, who are worried about, about um, uh, their own futures are worried about control, autonomy, security, uh, dignity, all of these things. And, and once again, I would caution people that handing power over to a government is not, uh, is not the best way to ensure those things for yourself. Right. Now, next question. Um, in end-of-life circumstances, is a decision to let nature take its course ever the right one to make? Um, or if it can never be the right one, who should decide and on what basis, especially about the extent that medical methods should be used to change nature's course? Well, yes. Well, you know, we we stand aside and let nature take its course all the time. Uh, we're always striving for symptom control. When it looks like your your life is coming to an end, um, if you've if you've got a, a good doctor and and a good nurse at your side. You're, you're going to be relieved of those symptoms which you find distressing as much as can be done. So it's symptom control we're after, not control of the underlying disease. That's often a horse that's out of the barn. So 
so uh, yes, it, it's it's only sensible to say that uh, there's a best before date on every human frame, and we are going to get to that point, each and every one of us. And when the time comes, it, nature will be having its way. The the idea of of incessant treatment to to uh, to get a day or two more at the expense of horrific side effects is something that I think we're, we're all getting pretty good at at rejecting. But then the, the question merely becomes one of symptom control, not not life prolongation. We're all going to come to an end, and the issue is usually quality of life in that situation, not length of life. Let me just press you. I know this is a tricky one, but let's just press you on this particular point where um, somebody is being kept alive um, by machinery of some kind, keeping the ventilation going, keeping the uh, rather the respiration going or keeping the heart going or whatever it is. And the, the physicians say to the family caregiver, um, we don't think there's any chance of recovery. And these are my words, not necessarily the doctor's words. Can we, should we pull the plug? If you put that into proper language, Will, what's your view on that particular question? Well, it, this, this is where communication between the care team, and let's just imagine we're in an intensive care unit scenario where you'd usually see a person being ventilated with a mechanical machine. Uh, so the, the care team and the family need to talk really well and really easily with each other because there are some scenarios where uh, the person is stable and with, with uh, hydration and tube feeding and ventilation, um, they will they will remain alive. However, there is no evidence of of uh, brain activity, and so in that case, the family needs to be comfortable with the idea that the brain has died, and that the the care team are proposing that the machinery be turned off. Uh, if the if the family is not comfortable with that, then more time and more explanation and more experience with the person's illness is necessary. These things have to be solved on a case-by-case basis and, and, and sensitive. They, can, they can't be solved by kind of a, a um, uh, blanket uh, description of a certain person as being a vegetable and, and uh, a blanket description of all mechanical ventilation as being um, a burdensome, meddlesome intrusion on a person. Sometimes it's just that little bit of a hand that the person needs to get over their, their immediate illness. So I'm just going to comment back to you. So what that comes to, Will, is discussion, um, a sensitive discussion between the family caregivers and the physicians and the nurses about what would be the future, what is the present, what can and cannot be done. And then... I'm assuming that it becomes a decision on the part of the family caregivers largely um, to say, yeah, maybe the time has come to turn it off. But it should all be gentle and respectful. Now, we are going to go into the break now, but I'm going to come back to that question in the next segment because I'd just like you to clarify whether what I've just said uh, is 
you're comfortable with it, whether it's whether what I was saying is the is the right thing to be said. So let's take the break now. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guest is Dr. Will Johnston. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Will Johnston. Our topic is euthanasia prevention, what family caregivers should consider. Now, I want to talk, we want to talk about what more is to be done to help family caregivers caring for family members in end-of-life circumstances. But I want to go back to the question that I asked uh, Will just before the break, which is essentially what is the best way of approaching this question of turning off the equipment when the brain is dead and life is being supported, but uh, the life isn't life in any sense of human living. Will, what do you think? Well, I think, it, again, a lot of latitude has to be given to the, to the family because um, there isn't just one patient really in the scene there's 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 the person on the ventilator but the the whole family really is the patient and if that family is going to have to live with the the uh, the memories of this death and the nature of the death the the timing of the events surrounding the death then the family needs to have a sense of peace that that it was it was a reasonable time to turn off that machine which of course simply means accepting the reality that our that, that a life has come to an end when a family is having trouble doing that, it makes a lot of sense for the care team to, to back off, to reassess the patient. Mistakes can be made. There are people who have revived quite remarkably, despite being declared to be near dead. And, um, and give it a little bit more time. If, if the care team is unusually aggressive, it will sometimes simply cause a, a, a kind of a, um, a reaction from the family, and, um, and sometimes these things end up in court, as, as you well know. 
But that, of course, uh, this, this problem is solved thousands of times all over North America every year with families uh, accepting that their loved one has, has died and that the, uh, the mechanical ventilation can be uh, ethically and, and morally and, and without any, any guilt turned off. And so it's the care team's job to help the family to realize that the time has arrived and to simply recognize the reality of the moment. Right. So that takes me into my next question to you, is, which is this. What more would you like to do and to see done to help family caregivers caring for family members in end-of-life circumstances? Well, it's, it's interesting that we've come to a, a, a time in history where we have uh, so many older people living really vigorous lives until, until a later age, and in many cases dying more gradually than they would have died in previous times when a sudden heart attack or a sudden pneumonia would have carried them away. And so really we have an entire population which hasn't developed all of the nursing skills, let's put it that way, that are required to, to give um, their, their loved ones um, the best possible experience at the end of life. And uh, this simply takes time. I think that a show like yours is, is fantastic. Uh, it gets people talking to each other, get, gets people to hear what the, uh, what the, um, the trends are. Uh, getting to know the community uh, resources for this kind of thing. Who are the public health nurses? How is it organized? Who do you have to phone to set up, for instance, a, a palliative care uh, team consult? Um, here in Vancouver, British Columbia, we have one phone number to call, and then um, some forms have to be signed, and then a palliative care team consisting of doctors and, and public health nurses and, uh, and others will be available to make home visits on the person. But that's, um, I think we've got a pretty good system. It, it, it's always being improved, but I, this is something that isn't available uh, universally throughout North America, and I think that's something that we're going to see happening. When, you, when it comes to more general support for, for people at home, uh, I think it's really important for families who are caring for each other at home to talk to other families who are doing the same thing. So you just simply uh, get experience by talking to your friends and neighbors. Find out where they're um, managing to find the hoists, the rental equipment. The um, uh, how, how are they handling uh, respite care? What are what are the facilities in the neighborhood where where your loved one can be cared for uh, for days or, or weeks while you go on a holiday, while you do other things that you need to do? Uh, what are the uh, what are the resources in terms of of um, of uh, physiotherapy and, and occupational therapy and so forth so that your loved one can, can be as comfortable as possible in your home? Does your home need safety, safety upgrading of some kind that, that could be assessed by an occupational therapist or a physiotherapist? So all, all of these issues are simply a matter of, of asking questions. So that would be the, the number one thing to do is you just ask a lot of questions and you recognize that nobody may have trained you to be, to be a caregiver or a nurse, but uh, all it really requires is, is, um, is the interest in doing it. And, and um, it, it, all, it all follows rather, rather naturally because the person's needs arise. This is going to be a quick question. That is a quick answer, Will. Um, for... Healthcare professionals, uh, 
and social service professionals and so on. Um, do you think they need more help in understanding the kind of issues you've been talking about? Well, the the healthcare professionals I'm dealing with who are involved in home care of the elderly here in Vancouver uh, do this full time, and they're 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 thoroughly aware of the resources. I rely on them to tell me what the resources are that are available, and um, they they also are very aware of the shortcomings in the system, uh, where the where funding is not adequate to staff uh, with enough uh, nurses for enough home visits and so forth. So. Uh, in general, um, I would say that people face other people's decline and and mobility problems and disability problems with a certain amount of dismay if they themselves have never had any such experience. In other words, people always imagine the worst for themselves, imagine that they won't be able to cope, imagine that they that they will find a situation intolerable. And um, this is rarely the case. People usually manage to make do and and find things to enjoy whatever their circumstances, whether it's a visit from a grandchild or a favorite program on television. Um, there, there are things to live for. And and um, when, when all of us are faced with some degree of disability, unless, we, unless we're struck by a falling tree, uh, we're, we're likely to all face some increasing degree of disability. I think that we're going to find that, that we cope and that people's ingenuity is unlimited, I think we're going to see an entire generation of new mobility devices, super-duper wheelchairs and, and, uh, and electric uh, carts for, for mobility outdoors and things like this. I think we're entering into a, a golden age of, of uh, being able to look after uh, unwell people or disabled people out of the hospital environment, and that's going to be a, um, a, a huge improvement in quality of life for, for everyone involved. So I'm going to feed back to you just very quickly. Your message to family caregivers caring for family members in end-of-life circumstances is essentially a hopeful one. That is, you're seeing good things evolving for the future, and that's a good reason for them to take an interest in all the discussion that's going on about end-of-life circumstances. Uh, have I got that more or less right? Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, I think that we have to be uh, careful that we don't get uh, sucked into a, um, a bleak pessimism where, where uh, it seems like the only way out is death. Uh, th there's simply so much to live for for everyone involved, and the, and the gift uh, that's being given isn't just from the caregiver to the person who's being cared for. I think that so many of your caregivers will, will tell you that they, they have a, a feeling of really being blessed through having had the chance to look after the person that they love. And so I, I think we, 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 we always must um, be careful to, to see the positive and, and to, to see, the, uh, see the potential for improvement in, in what we're trying to accomplish here. Right. And I, I truly feel that it, it's, it's, um, it's time that uh, we start to use some of the technology that's, that's been uh, so helpful in other parts of society and, and turn it to this problem. Got it. Now, unfortunately, we have to close. Um, so I want to say thank you, Will, for sharing with us all your thoughts, your insights, your advice, and particularly your optimism. The sense that uh, family caregiving at the end of life is important. Um, it's a two-way street in the sense that family caregivers get help, get insight, get spiritual um, 
comfort from what they're doing and as do the the people who they're looking after, the family members they're looking after. So thank you. And if I may say so, please keep up the work. It's important and people want to hear about it. Well, and I thank want you to for say, the work you're doing. I really great. I think what you're doing is so important. Thank you. And I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments. From our listeners, I'd like to hear from you about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. In our next episode, we'll, talk, we'll be talking about an interesting question, a difficult question. Is our mom on drugs? Please join us. Same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 